Good morning. Thank you for all getting out of bed for this. And um, I'm excited to share with you my enthusiasm for this new set of what we believe are conservation tools. Um, Revive and Restore is a project of the Long Now Foundation. How many of you know of Long Now? All right. Well, that's so great. Um, so you know we think 10,000 years. We really think long term with what we're doing. And this is not a get-rich-quick scheme. This is a project that is going to take, um, hopefully, progress in my lifetime, but through all of humanity. So on this painting, I just wanted to show you, this oil painting has 64 species that all went extinct within the last 200 years. And this rich tapestry of life is what we're going to talk about bringing back and helping ensure that more don't get added to this painting. So my personal story, very briefly, is literally 30 years of working in healthcare, in human medicine, um, working uh, on the left-hand side here of Time Magazine. This was 2000 at the advent of the Human Genome Project. And it was my second startup, and I decided I wanted to do something in genomics. And I started the first medical genetic testing company called DNA Direct. And within 10 years, that company, I started it in 2005. By 2010, it was acquired by a Fortune 35, Fortune 35 company with the idea of bringing targeted precision or personalized medicine uh, to individuals. And as we know, that, that promise is still there. It's already been, been uh, uh, you know, transitioned into formal practice. And I realized at that time in 2010 that maybe what I could do is now to start to shift my lens and part of my career and use what I knew about genomics, not to pioneer in human medicine, which was already moving forward, um, but to actually go to something really sleepy, which was conservation and the environmental movement, which has been very much stymied with the old paradigm of it's doomsday and we have to just worry about protecting habitat and they have not been paying attention to the new conservation tools of biotech. These three covers, I think, sort of represent what the media does with a lot of this. And I'm sure Andrew will talk about some of this. The right-hand side here is the new cover of Wired Magazine and really talking about the perils um, on the cover of these new genomic tools that are going to change everything from the food that we eat, uh, as Uma is going to talk about, to the environment uh, that we all live in. And I think that um, the primary cause of all this interest in and change in technology is what's in the middle, which is uh, Nature Magazine covering CRISPR technology, which is an incredible, powerful genomic tool for editing. Very precise. They use the image of scissors going in and engineering not just one gene, but many genes. And it's being used primarily and being uh, driven by biomedicine. And I'm hoping that conservation can draft behind that technology, start to use those technologies to really protect the environment and to protect the life that we know. So at the Long Now Foundation and with Revive and Restore, we think about this extinction continuum in a very uh, important way, which is that on this left-hand side, this is where traditionally conservation is focused on the endangered and the critically endangered species, especially these right now. There are so many that are in the center that are literally virtually extinct in the wild, where some of these technologies could be very powerful. And I'm going to get to the right-hand side of de-extinction, which is what gets all of the press uh, when, when we start to talk about uh, revive and restore. But let's focus on how we can turn the clock back on some of these that are marching into the, the extinction continuum. 
What happens in these small populations is what is referred to as the extinction vortex. And what happens is you start to get with a small population inbreeding, you start to get a loss of genetic variability, you get genetic drift, and it's a spiraling circle where you get a smaller and smaller population that is unable uh, to reproduce properly, they start having breeding problems of all different kinds, and they start becoming susceptible to disease. And this, to me, is one of the most exciting things and part of why I'm passionate about transitioning from me on human health and disease to the powerful tools of using genomics to actually stop some of these invasive wildlife diseases that are doing in these populations. So what we want to do with genetic rescue is turn this vortex around and to start to think about how we can protect species like the black-footed black ferret. I'm going to just run through really briefly um, how powerful this technology could, could be for the ferret. So um, we were approached by U.S. Um, uh, with the Fish and Wildlife Service, which, as you guys know, uh, oversees all endangered species in America. And they came to us and said, you know, we keep hearing all this stuff about revive and restore, doing de-extinction of woolly mammoths and everything else. Can you help us with our problem? And the black-footed ferret was thought to be extinct since 1950. And, and remember, guys, this, this species was here in the U.S. way before there was any human life here, before Native Americans. This is, you know, these species go back way in time. And what happened is Native Americans dealt with it fine, but as soon as um, northern Euro the Europeans came, we started going after its... Uh, it, number one, for its pelts, and hunting them for its pelts, and then we wiped them out when ranchers decided they did not like their, um, the prairie dogs that dug those holes, which is its primary and really only food source. And then with insecticides and poisoning, they, have, they literally wiped them off the face of the earth. So by 1950, they were all gone, except in 1981, a small population of 18 were found up in Matitsi, Wyoming. So the U.S. Uh, Fish and Wildlife brought them into captivity, and for 30-plus years, they've been running a captive breeding program. And in many cases, it's a great example of a success story. They're reintroducing them to the wild, but the truth is all of those 18 only had seven that went on to breed, and it's like they're all cousins. So no, no question they have any breeding problems. So what we wanted to do was to help them release more into the wild that actually could have greater genetic variation. So the first thing that we did was we, uh, we went out and went to a meeting uh, out at their headquarters, and we brought the smartest people we knew in genomics. And we agreed at Revive and Restore that we would fund the initial sequencing cost and do kind of an open source project, which is up on our website. We took two um, living specimens, uh, took DNA from two living specimens, so we got what the current population looked like uh, with their DNA. And then we went to the San Diego Frozen Zoo, which has a cell, uh, cell cultures over 10,000 species. And we got two cryopreserved specimens that were over 30 years old so that we could see what had happened to the genetic variability over time. And not surprising, it had continued to close in and lose more alleles. So our idea that we're proposing to U.S. Fish and Wildlife, and I'm in the middle of a whole proposal to do that, is to actually clone those frozen cell lines and potentially, and this would be really radical, to go into the areas where we know the other parts of the area where the range of the species lived, and get museum specimens, and to check to see if there's other alleles out there, other gene variants that we could, with, with the coding, uh, decide to turn back on. So basically, you take an extinct population genome, and you transfer over using CRISPR and all these technologies to the new genome. 
um, and engineer it in a clone species. So this is not an approved project. And it, it you know, I mean, I hope it happens. And I'm, I'm, you know, working hard to raise the money and, and to, uh, you know, write the proposal and get all the right experts on it. But we've got a killer advisory board on it. But it would be the first endangered species to uh, use cloning to increase genetic variability. And just so you know, all of these kind of um, efforts in endangered species use captive breeding programs with best practices. Many of them use artificial insemination. It's not a huge jump to introduce cloning. So I'm going to now start to work on the other side of our work on the extinction side. And our flagship species has really been the passenger pigeon. But I want to uh, point out that the reason we think so differently about this is that traditionally extinction meant the minute something crossed the line, there was no viable population. Whether it was in the wild when they weren't really breeding in the wild or when the last one winked out in the wild, you know, basically conservation has said, well, when it crosses that line, it's over. And I'm here to propose to you guys, and maybe it's not over. Maybe if you actually do have um, viable DNA, you could consider bringing it back if you have an environment to bring it back into. What we don't have and where something truly goes extinct is when there's no DNA. And no, there will be no, no dinosaurs. You cannot clone from stone. So why bring these species back? Um, you know, the reason that I'm passionate about this is that these, many of these extinct species were keystone species, and they really are ecosystem engineers. So the gap that they leave in nature is profound. It's not just one species, it's many species. It's an environment that they live within. And the passenger pigeon lived on the east, eastern deciduous, in the eastern deciduous forest, um, all the way uh, up into Canada. And it migrated in the flocks of the billions. And when it came through, that bird, which uh, was an opportunistic migratory bird, it didn't just go to certain places, it went where the food was and moved on. When it came in, it came in in huge flocks, and they actually did do some forest destruction, which is really a good thing. And they left a lot of dung on the ground, which is another really good thing. And what happens is when those forests get opened up, which we would like to do by fire, but can't because it's all surrounded by urbanization now. Um, fire does the same kind of thing. You open up that grassland, and you get a very rich environment that allows multiple species and a real bioabundance to occur. That's why these species are so important. So to fill that niche again, our proposal is to take the passenger pigeon that was hunted to death through industrial-scale hunting. That's the only thing that took it down. After millions of years, the most you know, abundant bird in the world was shot down by these guys. Bottom line is we have thousands um, of museum specimens, over a thousand museum specimens throughout the world of passenger pigeons with viable DNA that we can take just out of their toe pad. Revive and Restore has sequenced over 64 um, passenger pigeons, and we've sequenced the uh, band-tailed pigeon, its most closely related relative, and we're in the process of doing uh, the comparative analysis on that to take the West Coast band tail and basically, over time, through genome engineering and using CRISPR technology, turned it into a passenger pigeon. So hopefully bringing back the passenger pigeon um, in, in my lifetime. Um, the one that gets all the attention, of course, is the woolly mammoth. And uh, we're working with, um, a, again, National Geographic, New York Times Magazine, 
Um, and, and part of it is the big question of why and where would you put this mouth, but the big question of why continues to come up, and it's not just because it's a cool idea, but it's really because they, they again, were a huge ecosystem engineer. And there are people with a very viable proposal um, it's been written up in Science and Nature about why having the woolly mammoth back could actually help with climate change. Because they, by grazing, by turning up the tundra, by creating grassland, they actually can, it can actually sequester carbon. And uh, I'm not going to get into that, but I am going to tell you about the team that's going to bring it back. George Church, here looking like Santa, uh, Santa Claus, is the world-class genome engineer. He's one of the inventors behind CRISPR. And he is adamant about bringing back the woolly mammoth. And he's an incredible guy. And if you haven't read his book called Resurgence on the Future of Biotech, um, you should put Resurgence on your list. He's flanked here with just a handful of the graduate team that's been working with him at Harvard. They're amazing people. We have monthly calls with them. And we're contributing a small part to their campaign. But we need to spearhead it. They've already changed, switched over, over a dozen genes, primarily around um, uh, hemoglobin and uh, factors that will allow an Asian, uh, I should say, an Asian elephant to actually become a woolly mammoth over time in cell lines. They're doing this in the lab. They have switched these genes in the lab. Um, the Asian elephant um, is an endangered species, and we're also doing work on that. Uh, it's also very vulnerable to herpes virus. And because of the work that we've done through a conference I just recently put on on gene drives and the use of gene drives, for invasive wildlife diseases like herpes virus. Already, George is synthesizing the herpes virus, and they're hoping to actually figure out with CRISPR how to breed an Asian elephant that is not susceptible to herpes virus. Again, because of uh, over time and history, and we have um, Willie Mammoths, and we have their DNA from the tundra that are turned up all the time. And our hope is to bring them back uh, to the place that they belong. Sergei Zimov is the Russian scientist who has worked so hard to actually create an area for them. He's got a number of mega uh, herbivores already um, on site here in Pleistocene Park. So with that um, and that big audacious goal, I'm, I'd, I'd like to just really sort of close by saying, you know, this is just really a sampling of the species that we're trying to use these technologies for. We know these technologies are going to be powerful tool for conservation. And we know that they need first proof of use. And to do that, we have to help the conservation community and the wider public community understand the power of these tools and the safeguards that this community wants to take to ensure that they are thoughtfully introduced because they, they affect the germline. They affect everything. They affect ecosystems. And um, I'm, I'm sure Andrew will talk a little bit more about that. In my closing comment, for those of you who are in the Bay Area or, and those visiting the Bay Area, the Long Now Foundation runs probably the coolest bar in San Francisco. It's called The <laughs> Interval, and it's at Fort Mason. Um, and as part of our nonprofit, we have the right to be there and sell booze, if you can believe it. And uh, it's a wonderful place to have long-term long thinking conversations or about effective altruism. So I invite you to join it for coffee or drinks. Thank you.